Welcome to Green Matters, a podcast about sustainability, welfare, climate change and green spaces from the University of Winchester. In this episode, we speak with chef Stephen Doyle about how the university is embracing plant-based diets. We decided we wanted to do was when we wanted to do vegan food, we wanted to be tasty. We don't want to just tick the box and say we've done a vegan dish. We want the vegan dish to taste as good as any other dish. Lecturers David Raper and Lisa Riley talk about the impact of green spaces on mental well-being. And, and now we know at a physiological level that actually being outdoors does do us a lot of good. It, it makes us less stressed, it makes us less anxious, it gets us more connected, it gets us out of our head, which is good for emotional well-being. There's a whole range of things. Steve Hallett gives an overview of the university's drive to eradicate single-use plastics. The amount of waste that is produced, you don't see it because it's all... Oh, it's in the bin, it's in the corner, it's behind, a, it's behind a wall, you never see it exists. And the amount of waste that is created in general is just shocking. And we have poetry from creative writing graduate Rachel Cunningham. No more bubbles of breath from fish lips. They suckled at leftover salt crystals and shot their fix of O2 straight into a cold blood flow, but overdosed on PVC and choked when a tsunami of styrofoam balls and toothbrush bristles clogged up their gills. First, we join Vice-Chancellor Joy Carter, who gives us an insight into the culture of sustainability and values at the University of Winchester. So I am Professor Joy Carter, I'm Vice-Chancellor of Winchester University, and I'm proud to be associated with a university that describes itself as the University for Sustainability and Social Justice. Universities have a big role to play in this agenda. This is a really frightening time for the world and an important turning point. There are so many signs of the global crisis that we're in, particularly the climate crisis, and it's really important that universities step up and play a part. And at Winchester, in our own small way, I believe we're doing that. And we're doing it alongside our students, and it's fabulous to work in partnership with our students and with other stakeholders to try and help to move this agenda forwards. Winchester University has a wonderful social justice origin Um, and in 1840 the church founded the university to train teachers to teach the poor and we're really proud of that origin in social justice and it's been like a golden thread that's run through the university history ever since its origins. We're trying really hard to um, live to our core values. Our values are, we have three of them, they're compassion, individuals matter and spirituality. And sustainability is part of this golden thread alongside social justice, which runs through everything we do as well. And we we try and make those values live, we try and make those values real in everything we do. We don't always get it right, but my goodness, we're trying hard. And we want to be amongst the best in the world for values-driven higher education. In the Times Impact Rankings, we're ranked amongst some of the best universities in the world for our impact related to the Sustainable Development Goals. And that's wonderful. And we just want to do more. I'm very pleased that um, UK Higher and Further Education are collaborating together in the Climate Commission for UK Higher and Further Education. This is something which has happened recently. I'm pleased to be a co-chair of this commission. And we're really working towards COP26 in Glasgow. At long last, higher education and further education are grouping together to actually make a difference. And and I'm really pleased that that's happening. 
The University of Winchester is a United Nations prime champion university for mainstreaming sustainability throughout the university. We're one of only a handful of such universities in the world to get that status. And that's wonderful. But rather than just a title, we need to be out there doing things. And there's always more we can do. And we're really committed to that. We need action, but we need urgent action. Of the Sustainable Development Goals, there's only one of them that has urgent attached to it, and that's about climate action. And at this university, we're passionate about climate action and the urgency of that action. I'm Stephen Doyle. I'm uh, one of the chefs here in the university. Um, when I worked in the restaurants before I came to the university, veganism was a thing that, oh, not another vegan. Or like vegetarianism used to be for, for quite a many years, uh, risotto or stir fry or whatever we've got in the fridge. It was always um, not, not the nicest when someone comes, oh, we got a vegan on the menu. Um, about five, six years ago, more chefs would have gone, oh, God, not again. Um, whereas that's completely changed now, and you've got people popping up with, with restaurants, with books, TV shows. We see Bosch on TV every Sunday now. Um, so it's huge. It's it's um, it's exploded in the last couple of years. When I came here three years ago, we did the basics right. So we did the stir fries, we did the risottos. They were good, um, but we didn't go any further than that. We were happy to do that. People were happy to take that as well, because that's what they got when they went out. Um, but now, vegan has gone more mainstream. Um, there's so much out there that we're not even seeing yet. Um, and if you watch your YouTube and it's so accessible now the people aren't just accepting what you give them they want more they ask for more um, and there's it's little things like when we started doing um, meringues from chickpea water it blew people's minds um, and now it's it's mainstream it's we're making um, mayonnaise with chickpea water we're doing mousses with chickpea water it was something we would throw down the sink and not even think about it and it's something that we can use um, and reuse which is which is beneficial for everyone um, but veganism is in the mainstream it's not going anywhere it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger every year and it's not just people being vegan it's people just using or eating and a lot less meat so if people want to try something new they still want it tasty and, and that's our biggest that's what we decided we wanted to do was when we want to do vegan food we want it to be tasty we don't want to just tick the box and say we've done a vegan dish we want the vegan dish to taste as good as any other dish um, and the same when we do vegan desserts they have to be as good as a dessert with egg and dessert with milk it doesn't it's not just good enough to do a vegan dessert now you have to make it taste as good as any other dessert on the menu. We do, most of the time I don't even tell the chefs what it is or what what's not in it. Like there's no egg, there's no milk in it. They taste it as a dessert rather than it's a vegan dessert. When we try and do dessert, we have to replace the egg and that's our biggest problem. Um, we have a few, a few ways of doing that. We have an egg replacer powder. Um, when we mix the egg replacer powder, it smells like rotten eggs and it is absolutely vile. Comes out, tastes beautiful, the smell's gone. But when we, every time we do it, we're like, oh, the kitchen stinks. Um, so that is one thing we do. There's another way we do, we use flaxseed. If you uh, pummel flaxseed up in a pestle and mortar and add a, add a little bit of water to it, leave it aside for 10 minutes, it comes like jelly. And that can be used as an egg. Um, and then we also use cider vinegar. Um, if we use a plant-based milk and then cider vinegar, it curdles the milk. So then that becomes your rising agent.
we're always looking for new new ways of doing it as well. Yeah, these are the ones we've come up with so far, and they all work. We've got a competition coming up in April, which is with all the universities. We go to the we go to Warwick and we do up against every other university in the country, more more or less. And there's they've now the first time ever they put a vegan cooking competition on it. Um, and it's just coming up with n new ideas for that. They wanted innovative, they wanted something that we haven't seen before, so it's a couple of ideas we've come up with. We've got raw wraps, which um, is like, the one I'm looking at is a beetroot wrap, but it's a beetroot puree that's dehydrated and then rolled. It's the new way, it's a new healthy way, it's raw. It's raw vegan is the new way. So we're trying to come up with a new dish to, to go alongside that. So we've come up with little ideas and then We've got um, beetroot wellington. So when you cut it, it's got the lovely pink, red in, inside. We go out and see what other people are doing. Like the, Everyone has different suppliers to a certain degree. Um, but we always want more. We want to try new stuff. And I think we're very lucky the Vice Chancellor Joy is absolutely fantastic. Um, and she allows us to do stuff. And she wants us to do stuff. And she pushes us a little bit to do stuff, which is great. Um, so then if we want to do something, we can. Um, and we're not worried about, oh, what we're going to do with it if we do it but we we have we're on our fifth cookbook um so it's it's now we've done all this we, we don't shout about it enough so it's now to show what we do we give out all these free cookbooks to the students they can come in and get a free cookbook we've all five cookbooks are always on taste the world section in the kit in the food hall and they can come in and pick up a copy and they're all free As part of the third year creative writing module, Creative Visions, students are tasked with imagining a world beyond 2050. Rachel Cunningham wrote this poetry collection in response. Commuter's peace of mind. I squint out through gift-wrapped train windows, ignore the burning in my stomach. It's just the sun's glare heating me from the inside out like a baked potato in the microwave. My eyes are stained from trying to make out the small print calorie content on the back of a chocolate milk carton. Organic, grass-fed, free-range, naturally. So I settle down for an afternoon nap just as my carriage shoots past fields of grazing cows. And while my mind is busy counting sheep into the thousands, I look deep into their eyes and wonder if they would be more comfortable in the shade. Waves rode over homes once. No more bubbles of breath from fish lips. They suckled at leftover salt crystals and shot their fix of O2 straight into a cold blood flow but overdosed on PVC and choked when a tsunami of styrofoam balls and toothbrush bristles clogged up their gills, and snorkels built from chewed-up Starbucks straws sunk too deep. A love letter to the mackerel I caught on a hook 40 years ago. If only I'd knew then how I'd miss you, I never would have let you go. Dad said you didn't feel a thing when he slid the silver spear out of the flesh on your chin, so we could admire your handsome body before you slammed it on the water's face and landed back in the sea. I think of you often when the TV forgets it's not a trailer for a new blockbuster horror and tells me your home has evicted you for the sake of too many Friday night teas. Notes from No Man's Land. If we were living inside of our virtual reality headsets, we'd select end game just to start over. We haven't stepped out in months. We're writing messages of hope with sparklers for the Instagram likes, but there's none left on this crispy spot where an ice cap once stood. If hens in battery cages laid eggs the size of baby worlds, maybe we could live off them. Instead, we're left with the grass, the color of old blood and hands too stiff to hold a pen. Maybe they're cold, 
Maybe our bones simply gave up. The hurricane site warning signs are brighter yellow than the tinge of our unbrushed teeth and calcium deficient fingernails, but it's okay. We'll paint over them and add a filter before our outfit of the day pick. Last time I looked out the window, I saw cockroaches sledging over extinct species bones and plastic sweet wrappers frying like rashes of bacon. I decided I'd wait for the next cloud before I looked outside again. Do you remember when I was small enough for you to scoop me up and spin me around so that the pebble ridge became my ceiling and you my personal plane? I'm Steve Hallett. I am currently studying a Master's in Liberal Arts. I'm in the second year of the part-time for that. Uh, I did an undergrad in Liberal Arts here 2012 to 2015. I'm also doing a postgrad certificate in student engagement in higher education. And then I work at the university as the single-use plastic engagement and mapping coordinator. Over the course of last summer, Winchester Hub put out a series of internships that were available, one of which was in the catering department at the uni uh, to map their usage of single-use plastic. So I did a, as part of that, I did a procurement audit. So every single item that the catering department had bought over the previous academic year, all 3,200 product lines, uh, and looked at where plastic was used within them. So out of those 3,200, there were about six that didn't have plastic in them somewhere. Because you get the product as you buy it, then you get the three or four layers of packaging and then you get how it's actually delivered. So there's cling film, there's plastic trays, there's then plastic wrap over the top and it's literally everywhere. One of the things I looked at in addition to the audit of what was done was uh, ways in which other universities and other companies around the world have actually tried to get rid of plastic. One of the biggest things that nobody thinks of is cups. So any single disposable cup you use has a plastic lining they're almost impossible to recycle. So I think the figures, something like two and a half billion are used in the UK every year, and one in 400 are actually recycled because there's only three centers in the UK that can recycle them. So how do you get past that? Uh, there are various schemes across the world, but one of the ones I found that works really, really well is a returnable cup scheme. So uh, Freiburg in Germany, they do a returnable cup scheme. And then the the company that I interviewed uh, in the course of the internship, it was called GoToCup in Australia. And literally how it works is you go in, you place a, de a deposit on a cup. So whether it's a pound or it's two pound, changes on whichever cafe or place you go to or which country is running the scheme. Uh, and then you take it, you use it for as long as you want. And then when you're done with it, you bring it back and you get your money back. Hmm. So with that scheme, you can take a cup from cafe one then the other side of town, you can drop the, the cup off in another cafe, okay. you get your money back, and it's meant that instead of having to use three disposable cups in the meantime, you've literally got one reusable, returnable cup that lasts for as long as you want it to last, and you hand it back, and you can get a clean one. Or you can get your money back, and it's a wonderful scheme. As a result of all of that, the university, as of Monday the 3rd of February, is bringing in that scheme, So, which is a direct result of me having done the research for it. Um, so the university will be removing standard-sized disposable cups across the whole campus. The university back in April last year made the pledge to uh, eliminate unnecessary single-use plastic by the end of December 2020. 
And in order to actually figure out what you can get rid of, how you can get rid of it, where it's actually used, you need to know what is actually on campus. So we've been conducting uh, the university, myself, and Suez, our waste contractor, have been conducting a series of audits, series of surveys, series of workshops, series of interviews, in order to actually figure out what plastic is used, where it's used, where it comes from. And then once we've got all of that, we can figure out how to get rid of it. So as part of all of that, we had a audit, which was done on all the bin stores on site. So myself and a team of four from Suez went round and literally pulled out the bin bags, looked at what was in them. And then they've compiled graphs of what's actually where and where it's come from. So that is the report I was going through and sending back to make sure it's all good and tidy uh, today. Um, and then out of that, we'll have a draft strategy come through from Suez, which the Energy and Environment Department and Suez will work on to actually figure out, okay, these are the steps we need to implement. This is how we're going to do it. This is what we can get rid of. This is what legislation states that we can't get rid of because you need it. So say, for example, all your first aid stuff, it's all plastic wrapped. It has to be by law. So that isn't covered by the eliminating unnecessary single-use plastics because it's necessary. But otherwise, we're going to get rid of as much as we possibly can. We've been working with the finance team. We've been working with all sorts of people across the whole university to actually figure out how we can put in place measures to make sure it doesn't come onto campus in the first place. So instead of recycling something that's been created, making sure that something to be binned isn't created in the first place. So the cups are a large part of that. Uh, part of it is looking at what can be, what food that's bought at point of sale can actually be wrapped in something that isn't plastic. So you may have seen in Cyber Italia that they've now got sandwiches that are wrapped in non-petroleum-based plastic. Uh, aside from that, Warren's stationery, we have an agreement with them. So all of the stationery that the university buys for use by staff is now delivered in a thing called an unbox. So instead of it being a cardboard box, which you use, everything gets delivered, then it gets recycled, it's now delivered in a more solid box and then that box is sent back for them to refill and then bring back so you don't have the waste created in the first place and as part of all of that you don't have the individual plastic wrapping on all of those things um, when it comes to marketing all the things that are sent out no we're trying to move away from any plastic little bits the same thing with freshers and all of the events that you see you go anywhere else in the country and they'll just hand out loads of little plastic bits we're trying to move away from that so we're working with marketing we're working with comms we, we're just we're trying to get everybody on board to realize that not only is it a big issue but that it is actually possible to target it or to actually get rid of all the little bits I'm Lisa Riley I'm a lecturer in animal welfare um, and I've been here for a year and a half um, and have just a really exciting opportunity to work on the interface between animal welfare, society's view of animals, but also conservation. So that's one of my biggest passions, is trying to connect conservation, conserving species, ecosystems, but also society and values to animal welfare, and hopefully creating a better valued, respectful society. Hello, I'm Dave Raper. Um, I'm head of department for a department called Interprofessional Studies that sits in the Faculty of Health and Wellbeing and we've got a range of programmes that 
that concentrates on children and young people and uh, health and social care and animal welfare and, and a whole range of topics that, that are relevant um, currently and got a real interest in the way that um, we can develop the space between humans and non-humans and, and nature and well-being um, and, and a real interest in, in in the power in nature to, to, to heal and improve well-being and, and, and catch up on some of the stuff we've lost through the 20th century as, as, as we sort of become very science oriented and very medical model oriented and sort of lost our connections with nature one way or the other. And it can be a real simple fix can't it? A few minutes in green space really helps your clear your mind, it improves your well-being and sets you up for to be more productive even um, and it can restore a lot of um, health issues and um, I know before when we spoke Dave you were talking about prescribing green space um, and how it should be a second nature for GPs to actually prescribe that as much as any um, pharmaceutical therapy because it really is restorative to a person's holistic health. Yeah and I think it's it's really rewarding at the moment that the, the research is catching up with, with what we know. Um, I've spent my entire career working outdoors one way or the other in countryside management or outdoor education with young people and now I've got the opportunity to really look at the, the academic side of, of well-being and, and green space. Um, but the research is really catching up with, with giving us an evidence base for, for, for proving that and, and promoting this as a way of working. Um, and, and now we know at a physiological level that actually being outdoors does do us a lot of good. It, it makes us less stressed, it makes us less anxious, it gets us more connected, it gets us out of our head, which is good for emotional well-being. There's a whole range of things which are um, you know, very beneficial from green space. Yeah, I guess from an education point of view, if we want the future generations to be aware of conservation and to conserve global ecosystems, the best place to get them interested is to put them into the wild and to put them into an open space and allow them to experience it. And I know similarly, um, you know, we've both worked in outdoor education before, but taking a four or five year old child who has learning difficulties in a classroom outside and allowing them to hear the crunch of a leaf that's just fallen or that they come alive don't they and suddenly they can understand because they see it right there in front of them and as soon as you start to be able to understand and care about things you start to have an emotional attachment and that's when we'll get people into conservation and actively changing their behaviors so that they can conserve global ecosystems for the future. And I think it's that, from an educational point of view, it is it's that reconnection with nature um, and, and really enabling children and young people to, to really reconnect with, with nature in, in, in quite a tacit sort of way. Um, I quite like that um, quote by Thoreau um, about, it, it's not about us being in nature, it, it's about us being part of nature and, and helping children and young people to, you know, to, to get back into that space and, and feel a connection and, and a concern for the, for the planet and the environment they live in I think is, is very very powerful. Yeah and so people can learn respect for their position in something much bigger and more important and if we suddenly understand our place in 
the way that the world works and conserving species. We don't have to necessarily have first-hand experience of those species, but if you can allow children to understand their space, then they're going to inherently care about it. I think children more and more are being isolated on social media and without engaging with the real world around them. So if you're getting out into green spaces that are in your local community, you are actually fostering a sense of local community. That helps you to identify who you are and respect yourself, but also to respect others around you. So not only could your holistic health improve, then the health of your respective community could also improve because of it. Um, and if you're valuing the green spaces that you have, then perhaps if you're a young child with nothing much to do, you're far more likely to grow up respecting that space and not want to harm it or devalue it in some way. Episode one of Green Matters featured Professor Joy Carter, Stephen Doyle, Steve Hallett, David Raper and Lisa Riley, and poetry from Rachel Cunningham. It was produced by Glenn Fosbray at the University of Winchester.